Let's talk about another breaking story here that developed over the weekend, and that is some B.C. churches uh, continuing to defy the ban on in-person religious celebrations. We saw several churches in Chilliwack once again opening their doors to worshipers uh, yesterday on Sunday. Now, the latest from the RCMP on that, the Fraser Valley RCMP saying they are investigating a number of churches for ho- for hosting in-person religious services yesterday. Uh, they will not say precisely how many churches are being investigated, but uh, not ruling out bringing the hammer down here. A $2,300 fine is the potential penalty for opening your doors uh, to worshipers for in-person religious services. All right, lots of interest among our listeners on this show. So let's talk a little bit more about it now with my guest, Levi Minderhout. He's the BC manager for the Association Reform Political Action in Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Levi, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, I'm glad to be back on the show. Okay, Levi, you represent a lot of churches who are concerned uh, about this ban on in-person services. Does it surprise you uh, to see some churches opening their doors here on the weekend? Most churches are staying shut, but clearly some are willing to defy the ban. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. The thing is with this health order is that when it forbids in-person worship services is that it puts many, many Christians in a very, very difficult situation. So on the one hand, most Christians, myself included, take very seriously the commands in the Bible and God to obey and to submit to our government authorities because we believe that the government is to act for the good of Christians and for all Canadians as well. But on the other hand, most Christians, myself included, we take very seriously the command to worship in person regularly. So many Christians and churches are taking that, those two commands and really wrestling about how to obey them as faithfully as possible, but still take, have both of those at the same time. And so many churches and many individuals are making very conscientious decisions about how to act for some that will include worshiping on Sundays. Okay. Why can't you just worship at home though? So, you, in some ways, you can worship at home. For instance, you can uh, tune into a live stream to hear a sermon. Right. But corporate worship, at least in the Christian tradition that I'm a part of, right. corporate worship is more than just listening to a sermon. It's also singing with the people around you. It's also participate, participating in communion or the Lord's Supper, which you can't do over the Internet. It also involves praying together as a, as a body of people, receiving God's blessing corporately, also um, uh, confessing God's name together as a huge group. And that's something you just can't get online. Okay. And I, I'll just remind quickly listeners and sure. everyone that even when there, we are allowed to worship in groups of 50, that still meant that large portions of congregations had to worship online for the entire pandemic. So it's not like we can just switch all to online worship. We've been doing that for months and months and months already. Okay, most churches, though, are going with the, the ban and not defying the ban. This is a small number of churches, and largely in Chilliwack, opening their doors once again on Sunday. Let me play this here for you, Levi. This is uh, Melissa Skelton. She is the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Metro Vancouver. She was a guest on the show here last week. We talked a lot about these issues. We got a lot of reaction to the interview. The Anglican Church is abiding by the ban. They are not opening their doors. But I asked her, what about some of the complaints you hear from people who go to church saying like, well, how come you can still go to a bar? How come you can go to a Walmart, but you can't go to church? And here's what she told me. Uh, I try to focus on what we can do and what our mission as a church, you know, as, a, as an Anglican church and as the Anglican church in this area is, and it's about the protection of life. It's about uh, actually doing things that cost us a little bit in order to protect life of other people, not only our own parishioners, but, but people in the right. community. So uh, it's, a, it's a big job uh, assisting the churches to do that and, and encouraging them to keep doing it, and that's what I try to focus on. I don't focus on our, uh, in what's happening at liquor stores. <laughs> okay, I thought she made an interesting point there, Levi, when she talked about the focus on the protection of life. And obviously, you know, a lot of Christian denominations are, are pro-life, anti, anti-abortion. Would, I mean, wouldn't that extend to trying to keep people safe and healthy and alive during this, during this pandemic? I mean, isn't that part of being pro-life, to keep people safe from this virus? It, it absolutely is a central 
belief and uh, action from all Christians to try to protect and preserve human life. Your churches right. and Christians are right to do that. But even churches that opt to remain open, I know that they're taking, I am sure they're taking all sorts of precautions about wearing masks and social distancing, doing everything in their power to try to prevent any spread of COVID transmission. So they're not trying to gather in complete defiance and saying they're having no safety precautions whatsoever. They are still taking that idea well, that well, we need to protect human life very seriously. But hang on, they are they are still in complete defiance of this ban because the, the public health order is very clear. The ban is on in person religious celebrations and services so when you open your doors and you invite people to come in you're defying this order and potentially risking the spread of the virus right but life is so life is more than just about physical health though so in having a worship service there's also things to be considered contributing the spiritual life the emotional health the mental health of people who attend there as well. So it's not just about protecting physical life from COVID-19. There's all many other ways that even worshiping together as members of the body of Christ that helps facilitate, helps protect human life. Okay, do you think there'll be a court case? Last question for you. Do you think there'll be a court case on this? Because I've talked to some lawyers who say, well, maybe the churches have got a case here. When you take a look at the Canadian Char- Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it's right up there at the very top, freedom of religion. Do you think there's a court challenge blooming? So I just want to be clear before I end off here that our organization doesn't take a position of whether churches should obey or disobey or launch a challenge or not launch a challenge. But I would not be surprised if some churches do come together and come to a a legal issue, a legal court challenge on this. And I think that's a legitimate way to go. Our government is divided into the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches and asking one branch of government to talk and check if the other branch is doing something correctly, is doing something constitutionally. I think that's a fundamental feature and not a bug of our system. Levi, thanks for coming on again. Okay, thank you for having me. Okay, I, you bet. That's Levi Minderhoud from the Association for Reform Political Action. He represents uh, churches in British Columbia. Let's talk about COVID-19 and the second wave and the, the school system and how COVID is affecting BC schools. We have seen some exposures in a lot of schools in our province. Some people calling for tougher lockdown measures in schools, including this idea. Think about this. How about extending the Christmas break longer into the new year? Would that give the school system time to get a breather, uh, to get over this, maybe this uh, wave of COVID-19 start fresh in the new year? My guest is Doug Player. He is a retired teacher teacher and former superintendent of schools in West Vancouver. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Doug. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know you watch the situation very closely. What do you think about the, just generally about the way that this has been managed so far with the, here we are deep into the second wave of COVID-19, lots of concerns about the school system. Are you concerned about some of the rules in place that are for our schools right now? Oh, sure I am. I, I fail to understand why there isn't a full masking in place for the schools it's a that's a simple thing to do and uh, kids will do it if uh, and teachers will be able to enforce it if it's uh, stated by the pho i'm certainly concerned about the number of exposures i mean we've had 600 exposures now and or 600 schools have exposures and to say it's safe in schools is not correct at all um I, I mean, the experts, we, there's some very good experts. If you look at Yanir Bar-Yam, who uh, played a role in stopping Ebola in Africa in 2014, he says schools are hubs of transmission. And when school, they did a study, 131 schools, or 131 different countries, sorry. And uh, when kids went back to school, the virus spread, soared, it surged by 24%. It's, it's, it's not good here right now. Okay. And teachers well, are drained. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure of that. Well, I'm sure Bonnie Henry would, would give that argument. Uh, you know, she would counter that and say that we're not seeing massive spread or exponential spread of the virus in, in schools right now. But I, I certainly take your point on the face mask issue. Here we've had mandatory face masks in the province now for a few weeks. Seems to be working well. Most people seem to be going along with it. Uh, and yet public schools are very prominent exception i i don't know why she wouldn't just say let's let's go with a, a mandatory face masks in public schools i don't think there'd be much of a problem with it do you 
I completely agree with you. And and it's a place where you have a lot of faces in small places and often with very, very poor ventilation. It just makes sense. And, you know, we teach kids to be responsible citizens. Wearing a mask is a responsible thing to do right now. And on the transmission, by the way, we're not sure because they're not collecting data on it. Mm. Yeah, no, I think they've done a poor job in being just transparent about that school uh, COVID in the schools as well. I'll agree with you there. Speaking to Doug Player, he's a retired superintendent of schools in West Vancouver. We see uh, some universities and colleges, several of them in British Columbia, have announcing they're going to extend their upcoming winter break. UBC, SFU, uh, University of Victoria, Capilano College, they've all announced they're going to have a longer winter break here over Christmas. You think that's a good idea in the public school system too, right? I absolutely do. I think it, uh, you know, one of the things we were criticized in the SARS movement in Toronto was we didn't exercise the precautionary principle. Here, if we let uh, kids go stay home beginning uh, the 11th and keep them out of school until the 11th of January, that's 10 lost days of school for one month that we are absolutely sure we've halted school exposures. And then you can let help. It also helps contract contact tracers catch up because they're 10 days behind right now. And I absolutely am convinced it will slow the spread in this province. Okay, hang on. So you're saying shut the schools down this Friday? This is December 11th is this Friday. That's your... That's, that's correct. That's okay. one week early. Yeah, one and, week early. And then you see you have 20... Or sorry, you have 14 days before Christmas. Yeah. And so if grandma wants to come over, and if this family has isolated at home, because a number of parents are working at home, and grandma's isolated, she could be there for dinner. Okay, it's a two-week break right now. As a, a currently on the current school calendar in British Columbia, last day of school, you correct me if I'm wrong here, Doug, but it's Friday, December 18th. That would correct. be the last day of school. And then it's a two-week break, back to class on Monday, January 4th, right? So you would you Correct. would ex- you would extend the break. You'd start it one week early and then extend it what? Another extend it one week late into January as well. I would. Yeah. I would. Because that would give you the uh, necessary isolation or uh, exposure break. And you would be absolutely sure then you had nobody infected or asymptomatic and infected uh in a school you could also clean the schools deeply and make sure they're ready for them to come back. Okay, what about for parents who would have to scramble for childcare? I mean, if some parents are working at home, like a lot of parents are doing right now, but of course not everybody is doing that, but if you're working at home right now, maybe this wouldn't be too much of a problem to have your kids home for another couple of weeks unexpectedly. But for others who rely on the school system, they're out working during the day, they would have to scramble to find childcare. What about them? Well, that's why I think it should be announced today, because give them time to find a place. First of all, they do it, obviously, for the two weeks off the kids have off at Christmas anyway. So maybe whatever they're doing there, they can extend. Or we go back to June, where you have uh, perhaps a uh, situation where you had the one school open in a district for um, frontline workers. And you could distance in them, because my son-in-law is a frontline worker his child went to school and they're only in the class okay speaking of doug player he's the former superintendent of schools in west vancouver you mentioned contact tracers and we've heard that contact tracers are kind of behind with the numbers going up the last few weeks it's been difficult to have contact tracing go on effectively not enough contact tracers you think that this if you had a longer school break that would help with that allow them to catch up Absolutely. They would catch up. It would do a lot of things. It would give teachers and employees a well-earned kind of health break. Um, It would allow those contract tracers to catch up. And I just think it's it's really the right thing to do in terms of being very cautious and trying to get this spread under control. Okay, what have you heard? You've been making the case on social media and and elsewhere for this idea. What What kind of reaction have you got? Oh, very positive. And in fact, if you read social media, a lot of people are doing it anyway. They want, yeah, they're they taking yeah. their kids out on the 11th. I had one today contact me. She got six exposure letters in the last 36 hours. And she pulled her kid out and said, he's not going back effective today. Okay, we have an announcement. We have an update coming from Dr. Bonnie Henry this afternoon. You seem to be a, think that she's leaning in this direction. Is that right? <laughs> 
Actually, I don't. I wish she okay. were. Okay. Um, I I really wish she were because she seems to be dug in about the school thing on both mass and extending. Talking to former school superintendent Doug Player about COVID spread in BC schools. Here's an idea. Extend the Christmas vacation. Right now, Christmas, last day of uh, classes in BC schools, uh, December 18th, two-week break. Kids will be back in class January 4th. Should that be extended to slow the spread of COVID-19. Here's Health Minister Adrian Dix. He was asked about it. This has been considered in other jurisdictions, and it's something that we're, uh, we're, we're, is under active consideration in British Columbia. All right, thinking about it, phone me and tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Let's go to your phone calls. Mike in West Van. Hi, Mike. Hey, how are you guys? Good. Um, not against it with with a condition. Why not have uh, study assignments handed out to the kids if they're going to get another week off? The teachers seem to be more reactive than proactive on all this. We've had time to think about this. Offline school has been going on for years and years, yet we're not seeing it. Okay, Doug Player, your thoughts? Well, I think that's a good idea. There's uh, nothing at all wrong with giving an assignment. You have to remember that... Uh, they can do work online, and most districts have the capability, not all of them. And so uh, you could assign them certain uh, assignments that allow them to uh, work on whatever they're missing. But they don't have to miss any school because you just extend it at the end of the year until June 25th, oh, and the kids okay. would make it up. Yeah. Okay, interesting. 604-280-9898. Keep calling me on this one. Do you think the Christmas break in the BC school system should be extended? 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free in your cell. Paul in Richmond. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I um, I agree with it being uh, extended because uh, I'm a support worker for the board and I... Uh, I'm concerned. I wear my mask all the time, but still, you just never know. <laughs> okay, what kind of work do you do there? I, uh, I'm i a central cleaner. I go in and okay. I do the essential, yeah. Right, okay. What do you think about, I mean, are most kids masked up in school? I mean, we don't we don't have a mandatory mask order in, in the school system, but are, are most kids and teachers and support workers like yourself wearing the mask anyway? Yeah, almost all of them are. There are a few that aren't, and I... I don't get it, but that's the way it is. Okay, and you like the idea of extending the the Christmas break? Well, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, like like the fellow from North Van was saying, you can extend the school year, and that makes total sense because right. they are they are supposed to be coming up with uh, with a vaccine, but still. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? What do you think of the school, the uh, the cleaning regimen in the schools right now? I know, I know you're you're a, a, one of the cleaning guys at Custodian. Do you think it's yeah. you got you got everything you need to keep these schools clean? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're doing pretty good that way. You know, like uh, we keep on top of it, and um, the the only thing that would be better is if uh, the kids would leave the classrooms and the lunch hour, so you can go in and and clean their desks and chairs and. Uh, and the door handles and all the areas that they touch, you know. Okay, okay, Paul, thanks for calling in. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Do you, would this be an easy thing for the government to do, Doug? I mean, you know, you were coming up with the idea of maybe stop this, go out on Christmas break one week early starting this Friday. I don't know if it, the train is too far down the track to do that, but extending it for a week into the new year would certainly seem to be a more live option, do you think? They can do it right away. Um, yeah. You know, they close for snow days on the day's notice. Um, so it wouldn't be an issue at all if they announced today that uh, they were going to close on the end of the week and parents have a week to find something to do with their children. Okay, keep calling me on this. It's star 9898 on your cell. Andre in Maple Ridge. Hi. Hello, Mike. Hi there. Hey, I have a quick point. Uh, I think that it should be based on the income because I have a lot of families in our neighborhood that cannot afford to go on vacation or take vacation days or things like that to stay home with kids. And I know that some kids are staying unsupervised and people, people need to work 
because they live from paycheck to paycheck, especially in this busy uh, Christmas season when a lot of people in retail, you know, they don't earn a lot to afford to actually stay at home. So if we, if, if it would be impossible to have like less low-income families to, to have kids in school uh, during that and to have less kids in school, I think that would be, you know, a good idea, but I'm not sure about that. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, Doug, I mean, we, there have been options in the past where uh, kids have been allowed to go into into schools for the day, maybe some sort of basic supervision in a, in a gymnasium or something. I mean, is that is that an option for? Do you think for parents who who would not be able to who would need childcare would not be able to have their kids at home alone? Absolutely, it is. We did it uh, in the spring. Remember when we reopened in June. And throughout the spring, we had schools open for kids of essential workers. And so that would work just fine. They just use exactly the same model. And if you think about the last time that we were in very good shape in this province, it was when schools were actually closed. Yeah. Okay. Call the buzz line on this one. You can always leave me a voicemail. We may play on the air. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. We're getting calls on the buzz line about this one already. Let's have a listen. The teachers get paid. Get your butts in gear. Get to work. And stop the whining and complaining. They want to stay home without pay like others? Let them stay home without pay. Okay, I don't think you're suggesting, Doug, that they would just get time off without pay. You're saying extend the school year at the end of the school year. Absolutely. Right. And I, can yeah. al- I, I, I can also tell you that the teachers are in every penny because they've been long hours after school. And uh, this is a very small sacrifice to keep up everybody. The whole community would be safe because we'd be slowing the spread. Yeah, right. And and when you have the school year back in the in the end of the school year, back into the warmer summer months, presumably the number of cases would be on the decline, just like we saw in the spring and summer of this year. The vi- the uh, the vaccine is coming. That is going to be a great help as well. So that would be another idea for extending the school year later into the year and take the longer Christmas break. When you talk to teachers about this, we just got a minute or so left. What do they tell you? I mean, how are teachers feeling right now? The teachers are drained. They're exhausted. Uh, they find it very, very taxing. And uh, because they are exposed every day, nobody else is in this kind of a situation where they're stuck with 31 kids where they can't social distance and they don't wear masks. It's not a good situation. So, so and, and they worry some of them are eating in their cars at lunch. I mean, it's terrible. Doug, thanks for coming on today. Okay, enjoy it. Be safe, Mike. All right, thank you. That is Doug Blair. He is a retired superintendent of schools in West Vancouver. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier this morning announced that several hundred thousand doses of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine will be available in Canada before the end of this year. Trudeau said up to 249,000 doses of the vaccine will be on hand by the year's end to launch a mass inoculation campaign, the biggest in Canadian history. Here's Trudeau this morning. Our government, through the National Operations Centre, has been working with the provinces and territories to ensure that we're ready to roll out vaccine doses as soon as they are approved and delivered. On procurement of these vaccines, Minister Anand and her team have been working tirelessly to secure the most diverse portfolio of vaccines in the world. And today, we see those efforts paying off. All right, as Trudeau speaking this morning, he said the first doses of the vaccine will arrive as some provinces grapple with a sharp increase in COVID-19 cases. Here's Trudeau speaking about the vaccine being available this month. Canada has secured an agreement with Pfizer to begin early delivery of doses of their vaccine candidate. We are now contracted to receive up to 249,000 of our initial doses of Pfizer-BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine in the month of December. Pending Health Canada approval, the first shipment of doses is tracking for delivery next week. All right, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking this morning. All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Paul Lucas. He is the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Canada, a large pharmaceutical company, has a lot of experience and expertise when it comes to vaccine. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Good to be with you, Mike. 
Okay, what jumped out at you this morning from this announcement by the Prime Minister? Is this good news in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. It's good news that we're getting some vaccine in Canada, but the bottom line is it's not nearly as much as it should be or could have been. And I say that because we're going to get 249,000 doses this month. Right. Uh, I've always maintained that, you know, we should have been in a position to get many more doses than that uh, a lot earlier. Uh, the U.K. is getting 4 million doses in the month of December. Right. Um, if you look at their 4 million, that means, you know, we should have gotten 2 million in the month of December, and we're going to get 249,000. So, um, you know, we we could have done a lot better. Yeah. 249,000, I mean, obviously the Prime Minister wants to show the country that they're on this, they're leading, they're getting this vaccine going, but... Yeah, 249,000 shots may sound like a lot, but it's a two-dose vaccine, right? So, I mean, you got to cut that number in half to determine the number of people who would get the vaccine. So you're looking at, what, 125,000 here on the initial rollout of of Canadians who would receive the vaccine, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's equivalent to a small town in Canada. Yeah, and especially when you think about, all right, the most vulnerable should get the vaccine first. I think everyone would agree on that. But, you know, you think about how many vulnerable citizens in our country. I mean, senior, senior citizens in, in Canada make up almost like six million people. Well, that's, that's correct. You need, you, need about, you need to be able to vaccinate about 10 million people in Canada to cover off uh, frontline workers, emergency workers, and seniors. So um, right. we're getting 250,000 doses. It's a start. But, uh, and there's a number of reasons why we aren't in the position we could have been and should have been uh, with respect to doses. Um, but it but it goes back, and there's a lot of history behind that. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, Trudeau has taken a lot of heat here over the the what was a, a slow, it appears to be like a slow rollout, especially when you compare it to, like you said, the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, other countries just seem to be ahead of us here. Why is Canada sort of behind these other developed countries here in rolling out a vaccine? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, You know, one is the fact that uh, Canada really does not have any constructive relationship with the innovative pharmaceutical industry. Uh, And that that is come into play quite dramatically in this situation. So we're very much in a transactional relationship with major pharmaceutical companies who realistically were the only uh, organizations that had any chance of developing a vaccine for COVID and, and manufacturing it in the quantities we needed. So, I mean, that's one issue, uh, no relationship there. The other one is that we don't have any uh, domestic capability to manufacture a vaccine like this in the quantities that we need. And there's good reasons for that as well. Right. Now, I heard uh, Justin Trudeau make that point frequently in the last few days as well, that we don't have the capacity to produce this vaccine in the numbers that we need domestically. And he has pointed the finger, he loves to point the finger at the conservatives for that, saying it was previous conservative governments when they were in power that we lost some of our production capacity. In your mind, as a guy in the pharmaceutical industry, is that a fair shot, or do you think some previous liberal governments are to blame as well? No, it is not a fair shot. Um, uh, it's been a situation over the years where successive liberal governments have been creating an environment in Canada that is not friendly to the pharmaceutical industry. And, and keep in mind, I don't work in the pharmaceutical industry anymore. I'm an independent citizen, and, but I know this history. Um, in fact, it was the Conservatives under Mulroney and Harper who tried to improve the environment here uh, with respect to improving patent protection in Canada. But it was never enough uh, to make Canada globally competitive uh, in terms of pharmaceutical investment and R&D. So, um, you know, I, I have written a paper about this in the last little while, and the reason I wrote it was because Minister LeBlanc was on uh, television last week and he stated exactly what you mentioned, that Canada doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have any vaccine manufacturing, uh, which just isn't true. And in fact, he said that GlaxoSmithKline had closed its manufacturing facility during the Harper years, which is not true. Uh, in fact, that vaccine facility uh, in Quebec City that uh, GlaxoSmithKline runs has been running for a number of years. It actually produces the annual flu vaccine for Canada. 
Right. So uh, they didn't quite have their facts right. Right. Speaking of Paul Lucas, he's the former president and CEO of Glaxo GlaxoSmithKline Canada. Of course, Big Pharma is a popular kind of political target um, by any by any part by lots of different parties and governments. Is it fair? Like you know, if Trudeau was sitting here right now, would he say, "Well"? You know, what we have done is we've tried to bring pharmaceutical drug prices down with by bringing in generic drugs or trying to reduce the prices to Canadian citizens. Does that have a sort of a counterbalancing cost in terms of uh, research and development capacity and production capacity in the country? Absolutely. In fact, I like to say the chickens have come home to roost because it was uh, Justin's father in 1968 who made the decision to eliminate patent protection for innovative pharmaceuticals in Canada. And as a consequence, the R&D that existed at that time pretty well all left. And uh, through the successive decades, um, you know, the environment has just gotten worse. Uh, it's gotten no better. And in fact, this government, uh, even today, uh, is implementing new pricing guidelines for the pharmaceutical industry, which is going to drive down innovative prices even more, uh, which will drive out the remaining R&D and manufacturing that exists in the country, I suspect. Okay, well, we're, certain, we're in a tough spot now, but there's a lot of hope for these vaccines on the horizon. Let's talk a little bit about that and the potential rollout of this vaccine in Canada. What do you see as the biggest challenges here, particularly this Pfizer vaccine, which has to be stored at that ultra-low deep freeze temperature, like minus 70, minus 80 degrees Celsius? What kind of challenge does, does that present for distributing this vaccine across the country, do you think? Yeah, it's a unique challenge in that, um, you know, we, we've always been able to, to, uh, to ship vaccines that require a cold chain. Um, and so we've always done that quite successfully, but this is unique in that it's, you know, uh, extremely cold. But I think, you know, I'm pretty confident that, um, you know, the resources that are in place right now uh, and are being put in place will be able to handle that successfully. And I know the Pfizer vaccine, they are intimately involved in the distribution to make sure that it gets to the right places and it gets uh, to the right places at the right temperature. So I think that's been, you know, a real challenge, but I think it's uh, going to be handled fine. Yeah, Trudeau has taken a political pounding here over this over the last couple of weeks. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing this sort of renewed emphasis on it, because he knew uh, he was just getting beat up so bad by the opposition here for the lack of a detailed, clear, precise plan uh, to get this vaccine out to Canadians. I mean, this is the this is the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel we've all been hoping for. And we want to see more transparency, right? I mean, we want to see more details. Like, what do you think is missing here? Do you think there should have been a much clearer plan with, with dates and, and, and very transparent planning to get, to get this vaccine out? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think three weeks ago, it became very evident to me and a lot of other people, I would think, that the government, uh, Trudeau and his government, realized that they were facing a significant political risk here, yeah. uh, that we were behind a lot of other countries. Uh, we weren't going to be able to vaccinate our population fast enough, and Canadians would be sitting here saying, what happened? And so, you know, they have been, by my definition, in full panic mode in the last three weeks, doing everything possible they can to be to get uh, messages out to the public to say that we've got the greatest vaccine portfolio in the world. You know, we're going to get everybody vaccinated. Everybody be vaccinated by the end of September. You know, so that, you know, that that uh, was the realization that they were very much in trouble. Uh, a lot of this could have been avoided, um, particularly on the communication with a lot of the details. I mean, it's it's kind of silly that we just uh, appointed uh, a general to handle the logistics federally just a couple of weeks ago. That should have been done yeah. a few months ago. Right. And in fact, in the U.S., I, you know, we we like to criticize the U.S., but they did it right. You know, they they appointed uh, the proper people months ago. They appointed uh, actually the ex-head of vaccines globally for GSK, for GlaxoSmithKline, to run Operation Warp Speed. And, you know, they, the government of the U.S. put a billion dollars into each of those pharmaceutical companies, and here we are 
you know, seven, eight months later with a vaccine. It's, it's really a miracle and uh, a great example yeah. of what can happen if governments actually work constructively with companies. Right. And we just haven't done that in Canada. Right. Trudeau, though, has said that we have this wonderful, varied portfolio of vaccines. We don't just have one or two. We've got many different vaccines, <clears throat> six potentially to roll out across the country. And he, ta- he tries to take a lot of credit for that. But given the fact that we're handicapped, I guess, by this lack of production capacity uh, to produce these vaccines in our, in, within our own borders, we're relying on other other countries to help us here. Do you think that Trudeau made any fundamental mistakes in that regard? Like, was there a delay or was there any kind of uh, in getting these deals that to, ne- to negotiate the purchase of these vaccines? Or do you think Trudeau did a good job on that? Well, I think there was some delay. And I think uh, the, good, the good news and the good thing that they did was that they appointed a national vaccine task force, which is made up of external experts. And they were the ones, I think, that realized very early on that we had no hope of producing a vaccine in Canada. So they made a recommendation around which companies the Canadian government should contract with. And they went ahead and did that. But in the meantime, uh, the Trudeau government actually spent a lot of money, millions of dollars, throwing money at a few other organizations uh, that had no hope of producing a vaccine in the quantities we needed uh, in the near future. And that money... Maybe it'll pay off two, three years from now, but it, in effect, is a waste of money with respect to uh, this pandemic. Thanks for coming on today. Happy to do it, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. That is Paul Lucas. He is the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Canada. It's a big pharmaceutical company. This weekend, I had the opportunity to experience a, a really amazing piece of investigative journalism. It's a multimedia investigation into large-scale disappearances in Mexico, the tragedy of the family searching for loved ones, and the largest mass grave in Latin America. The project is called Disappearances, and you can read it and experience it on your computer, on your smartphone. It's in partnership with the Globe and Mail. And my next guest, the very fine and award-winning reporter, Stephanie Nolan. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. This uh, and congratulations on this work. Um, Thank you. Yeah, this is this is terrific, and I, I encourage everyone to check it out because I don't think I've ever experienced a kind of looking scrolling on my smartphone and being able to really get into the details of a of a complex investigation. I'm sure for you, and it's and it had like video and audio and maps and and photographs all sort of popping up on the screen. And man, oh man, it's it's really something to experience. So I, I encourage people to check it out. Uh, so Stephanie, tell me how you got into this. Cause it's an extraordinary work here. Thanks. Um, so <laughs> the project started when I was the Golden Mail correspondent in Latin America, and we were looking at Mexico, and it was a really important time in Mexico. Um, last week marked two years since uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador became president, and he he was elected with a real like. You know, we're throwing out everything bad that's happened before and it's all going to be different going forward. And so we were looking for a way of talking about really what were all of the challenges facing Mexico in that moment. And we decided to write about disappearances um, because it's, it kind of brings together everything, right? The So the public security and violence crisis, which probably a lot of people, you know, people have seen Narcos on Netflix or whatever, like they know that that's a thing. But it also gets to... Um, the failures of the of investigations and the police and the a lot of state institutions that should be protecting people. And really what it revealed is the connection between organized crime and the state on many levels. Yeah. And so we but we also but but also right dis- I, I disappearance obviously is a phenomenon that happens what well, happens around the world in in situations of human rights violations but it's certainly been a big deal in latin america i've been reporting on latin america for the last decade and and uh i'm i'm always really moved talking to the families of the disappeared because you know obviously when you speak to a family who's had somebody murdered or die in violence like the kinds of families i used to talk to in brazil for example it's terrible, but also it's ended. And, and you can, like, to some degree, you know how to, like, you know, you know that your life going forward, at least you have an answer about what's happened to this person. And the families that I meet 
who've suffered a disappearance, um, it, it, it doesn't ever end, right? You just right. don't know what's happened. And so it consumes your life in this, in this just absolutely all-encompassing way. Um, so I was also really sort of drawn to that aspect of the story. And so we decided that we would write about disappearances. We would talk about all of these other issues through the story of disappearances. And then, of course, the question was, well, how are we going to talk about this? You know, what 16 people disappear every single day in Mexico. So there's no wow. shortage of stories, right? Yeah. But what story are we going to tell? Um, and one of the things just sort of as a journalist that makes it complicated to write about is, is that by definition, if you're writing about someone who disappeared and we don't know what happened to them, you don't know what the story is, right? <laughs> like I, I can't tell you the story of the disappeared because we don't know what happened. So we wanted, we decided we would work backwards from this grave, this, this mass grave that I had been to um, not long after it was first found, uh, I guess the first time I went was almost five years ago, four years ago. Um, but at that point, we didn't know. Eventually, 298 people were found there. And wow. at that point, we didn't know it was going to be that big. Um, but we did know a little bit about it. We did know from a few of the people who'd been found that a really a pretty wide array of people had wound up buried there, people who probably didn't have connections to each other. And so that seemed like a way of... Um, taking people, if we talked about this one grave, that was a way of talking about all of the different ways that disappearance is used as a tool of terror and social control in Mexico, and also a way of talking about, again, about the state failures that allows that to happen. Right, right. It is a really extraordinary experience to see your sort of, I was using, an, uh, I was reading the article on my, on my iPhone on the weekend, and you just scroll through the photos, the interviews, the, 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 the details, and it really brings you inside the story of these people that you met and interviewed in Mexico as they tell these absolutely heartbreaking stories about the disappearances of loved ones and their their efforts to find out what happened to them. And can you tell me a little bit about the city that where all this took place? Veracruz, right? Yeah, so it's, it's so Veracruz is both a city and a state. The, the, the capital of the state of Veracruz is, is the port of Veracruz, and it's on the Gulf of Mexico. It's a big oil center. Um, it's one of one of the major oil ports in Mexico. Um, it's uh, and it's also. Um, uh, it's a transit route. So it's historically, you know, going back like hundreds and hundreds of years, it's been a transit route from south to north across Mexico. But these days it's used by migrants coming up from Central America. It's used by uh, human traffickers. And it's also obviously used by narco traffickers. And so, and, and then it just has been cursed with a particularly venal and terrible series of governments um, and uh, a governors in particular and state governments and also just became um, really the civilians of Veracruz were trapped, uh, really caught in the middle of a political fight um, between the, the state government and the federal government and the federal government choosing to target one cartel, which was the cartel then in control of Veracruz and sending in essentially a second cartel got called, called in to wage that fight for them. Uh, but then it took over state institutions on its own. And so, you know, I think we really, we often have this perception of Mexico and, and indeed Mexicans have this perception. Mexicans will tell you when people disappear, um, oh, that person must have been mixed up in something. Um, right. and, and, you know, that, that is true. There are lots and lots of people who, who either because there are no other economic opportunities or because they're drawn to that life do um, do get injured, get killed, disappear in the course of, of working for organized crime. But, you know, one of the lessons of this story was an enormous number of people who are just going about their daily lives just right. disappear yeah. for no other reason than because somebody wants to send a message about the level of power and impunity that they have. And, of course, there's no more stunning way of delivering that message to a community, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the most heartbreaking part of the investigation that you did. It sort of takes you into the lives of these families and people who would would appear to be maybe innocently targeted. We don't, you know, obviously all the details are unknown, but man, when you talk to these mothers and fathers and their efforts to find their children who have disappeared, it's just unbelievably tragic. And, and to experience it in kind of a multimedia fashion like that is is really amazing. Uh, just in the couple of minutes we got left here, Stephanie, I mean, uh, this looks like a ton of work. Man, oh man, how, do, how long did you work on this thing? 
Um, so I worked on it off and on for a couple of years, and I should make very clear that this was in no way a solo effort. Um, I had yeah. a so I worked with an amazing Mexican photographer named Felix Marquez, who has been photographing the families of the disappeared for years, um, and who was an amazing source of information for me to help me understand better. And who also has he's been targeted repeatedly, as many Mexican journalists have, for violence himself. And so um, he we got into the occasional kind of hair-raising situation, and he was great at helping me figure out how to do things safely, which, um, or more safely, all all things being relative, uh, which I really was grateful for. And then in Toronto, the Globe has a really fantastic uh, digital storytelling team, Laura Blankensop, uh, who is a multimedia editor who figures out how to how to build these things. Um, Jerry Agus, Agus, who writes the who writes the code, Tim Moore, who helped put together the video and the images. And so um, it is very, very different from a conventional newspaper story. It involves a very different skill set. And as much as possible, you know, I'm a writer, but as much as possible, I didn't want you, I want, I didn't want you to know that I was there. (laughs) I want you to, I want you to feel like you're with these families. And something that was quite new for us is that we used a drone to build a 3D, a sort of, um, a three dimensional model of the grave that you as the, as the viewer can sort of travel around with the family. It's, it's amazing. um, It's, it's amazing. (laughs) And, um, and, and I must, uh, I commend you for it. Congratulations on it. I encourage people to check, uh, follow me on Twitter. I've posted the link to this and it's, it is well worth your time to check out the the product of this incredible uh, investigative uh, effort here. Stephanie, congratulations on it. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. Thanks very okay. much for reading, Mike. You Take bet. Care. Stephanie Nolan, a very fine investigative reporter. Follow me on Twitter. You'll find the link to it there at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H, Mike Smith News on Twitter. Something that a lot of people feared. A man has died at the Strathcona Park homeless camp. This happened over the weekend. And now residents in the neighborhood wondering if this is the first of more to come. Our show contributor, John Jang, spoke with one resident who has been calling for action. Good morning, Mike. Tragic news from Strathcona Park over the weekend. A man was found dead on Sunday morning, marking the first casualty in that park ever since it became an encampment back in July of this summer. We hope this will be the last preventable death, but with residents in and around the camp still waiting on any kind of significant change, it's tough to fathom how things will ever improve. But for more on this, I am now joined by Jamie McLaren. He's a social justice lawyer, but more importantly, he is a resident of Strathcona. Jamie, what is your reaction upon hearing the news of yesterday's discovery, and where do your concerns currently lie? Sure. Well, it's, it's tragic when anyone dies under any circumstances. But I think it's doubly tragic when someone dies alone, uncared for in a in a city park, um, on under avoidable circumstances. You know, it's been six months since the camp is set up in Strathcona Park because it's displaced from Crab Park, and it's been two months since the city of Vancouver resolved to do something about it and immediately, and, and they resolved to uh, establish emergency pandemic shelters, um, and then triage people in the in the park into these shelters. And, and as far as we can tell, none of that's happened. Um, and so it's, you know, it seems like this is avoidable and, and incredibly tragic. And it's uh, a really sad day here in Strathcona. Could you clarify just what it is you and the rest of Strathcona residents are waiting on exactly? We mentioned the promises made by local government leaders. What is that? It was an amendment to the, the main resolution about how to, to, to deal with the situation in Strathcona Park and homelessness in general. And it was passed by city council and it says direct staff to secure locations and immediately activate temporary pandemic shelters, working with Vancouver coastal health to triage unsheltered people and explicitly facilitate supplanting unmanaged encampments, including Strathcona park with carefully considered safe indoor facilities. So there's a direction given to staff on October 8th by, by city council to find indoor facilities like the Jericho hostel that remains empty and and nothing's come of this and it's just you know it's it's mind-blowing and it's completely bewildering as you say um that you know this this is the case so i I don't know what's happening over at the city city hall um that they're not acting on these carefully drafted and considered uh resolutions but but something's not happening obviously at city hall and it's and, you know, I appreciate any, any scrutiny that anyone can provide around that. Would you agree that the conditions in the camp are 
at this point deteriorating as we're now in the winter season and we know the weather is quickly becoming a major challenge. Yeah, well, absolutely, things are getting worse. You just need to go and walk through the park to see that the conditions are, are worsening. It's um, the weather's colder, obviously. Um, the the ground is wet. Um, you know, there's there's tents are being built. Uh, people are doing what they need to do to survive in the park, and and the city just isn't doing what they need to do to help them survive. So they're building. People in the park are building structures that are um, sometimes two-story structures and they're heating their tents which aren't meant to be heated from the inside certainly and um they're they're just they're doing what they need to do to survive and it's um it's incredibly disappointing to us uh in the neighborhood to see that that they're being abandoned by government at this point and there's no no relief in sight and are you able to describe what it's like for you and the other residents of the strathcona neighborhood who are also suffering from the lack of aid yeah, I think there's a certain resignation uh, to the status quo that's happening in this neighborhood. We've been promised so much. We've had so many discussions with politicians, with people in authority, and, you know, there's promises made. Uh, it seems everything's just around the corner in terms of, of relief, of shelter and so forth, but nothing seems to come. So it's just um, at some point, you know, you, you just resign yourself to this is the way things are going to be for quite a while. And I think we've gotten to that point here in Strathcona. You know, the the park, it's, it, the garbage is piling up. It's not removed on a regular basis. It, it's just a, it's a real mess there. And it's just a, it seems like the, the park has been abandoned and the, the wider neighborhood has been abandoned politically. Before we let you go, Jamie, would you call the situation in Strathcona so far and ultimately the tragic death that we saw over the weekend, would you call that simply a failure in leadership? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been an exercise, as far as I can tell, in finger-pointing. No one wants to take the lead here. No one wants to stick out their necks from a political point of view and do what's right to, to get folks in, in Strathcona Park housed. And um, it's, it's incredibly bewildering and disappointing. And, you know, you can't just wait for the – well, all you can do is wait for the next election to come around so you can address this because it's – you know, we feel very powerless as – as residents here who live, you know, side by side with people who are, are at risk of, of dying in a, in a city park. So it's, you know, um, it, it's hard not to, to feel hopeless about all of this. And you just hope that someone will do what's necessary to, to take care of our most marginalized and vulnerable people. He is Jamie McLaren, social justice lawyer, and more importantly, a resident of Strathcona. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, John. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. Okay, that, of course, is a little bit of the trailer from the documentary TV series Tiger King. is such a popular uh, Netflix series. And I'll tell you what, that series have draw, drew a lot of attention to the private ownership of big cats in the United States, primarily tigers and lions. Now, check this out. The U.S. House of Representatives has just passed a bill known as the Tiger King bill that would ban the ownership of big cats in America. Should Canada do the same thing? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Rebecca Bretter. She's an animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Give her a follow on Twitter at Animal Law Canada. Rebecca, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on. A lot of people, I think, were shocked by the Tiger King series and the realization of just how many of these big cats, these big exotic cats, are in private ownership in the United States. And we'll talk about Canada in a second here, but you know, in the United States, I mean, there's more there's more cat, uh, tigers and lions in private captivity than there are in the wild, right? I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's absolutely insane, and it's actually very similar here in Canada. The same can be said. There are more captive. Uh, wild animals and big cats in particular than there are in, in zoos. Like, I mean, I don't think either is, is fine, but it's just crazy to think that your next door neighbor could own a tiger. Not here in BC, though, just so you know. Okay. We'll get to that in a moment. But Yeah, no, that's very interesting about the law uh, across Canada because it's kind of a patchwork, right? Like it, it goes, yeah. it's on, it's provincial jurisdiction. So in British Columbia, it's illegal to own 
a tiger or a lion, like a big cat like that, but in other provinces, you can own them, correct? Yes, exactly, exactly. The laws here in Canada, actually, if I get, generally speaking, they suck for, well, (laughs) from my perspective, of course, from, um, I mean, I say they suck, really, because there isn't a cohesive set of laws they vary according to the province, and then even within uh, within the different provinces, the municipalities have different laws. So there's really, like you say, it's a patchwork system. So here in BC, we're we're kind of lucky in terms of public safety, and also when it comes to the welfare of, of these beautiful animals, because you're not allowed to have uh, exotic animals. Uh, generally speaking, there's like a list of over a thousand of them or so that are prohibited or restricted in yeah. BC lions and tigers being being some of them but yeah and and here in bc that was as a result of you may i think you did a story on this actually um a while ago in 2009 i think or maybe it was 2007 2007 yeah well yeah yeah, right the incident happened in 2007 and the law passed in 2009 but in 2007 this woman um up in northern bc had a pet tiger and she was putting her arm through the cage to pet her pet and he basically sliced um, her her leg. She bled to death in front of her kids. I mean, that must have been traumatizing for everyone. Um, and as a result of that, BC passed a law, rightfully so, banning the keeping and sale and breeding and things like that of exotic animals here in BC. Yeah. No, I remember that story. I covered that story at the time. And I'll tell you, that was among the most heartbreaking stories I've ever covered in in my career in in journalism. Tanya Dumstreet Suze was her name. Yes. She was 32 years old. And yeah, she was just, she was. uh, cut by this tiger, and yeah, his blood. Well, mauled, mauled, definitely more. Terrible. Yeah, and and I mean, what's so sad about this is that there were a number of other incidents across the country. You may recall the other kind of uh, famous incident, so to speak, was um, a few years ago. Well, more than that, in 2013, there were two young boys in New Brunswick sleeping. Oh, remember yeah. this one? Yeah. Who were uh, who were basically suffocated by a big python who escaped from yeah. a pet shop in the same building. Yeah. Like, imagine that. Yeah. And and there are other incidents too. There were, in 2008, there was a black jaguar who escaped a chain link fence in Ontario. Um, someone keeping him as a as a pet, and the and the jaguar ended up attacking and like seriously injuring a dog to the point when the police came, they killed both the jaguar and the dog. Then you know the the list goes on. There was uh, in Niagara Falls, and this is more recent in 2018. Um, in, again in Ontario, someone spotted a cobra. He got it. This guy got into his truck. Uh, spotted a cobra in the back of his truck. Not his. The cobra escaped. And then in Toronto, just last year, there was uh, a python that went missing in Toronto. Um, and then they, the authorities thought they got the right python uh, discovered in the sewer grate. But they realized that it was actually a different python than the one that was originally reported to escape. So it just created, yeah, and Ontario is one of the worst, actually, I should say on that note one of the worst in the country when it comes to uh, laws governing right. exotic animals. There aren't any. It's, it's legal. This is what gets me. It's illegal. You're not allowed owning a pit bull in Ontario. And I don't want to get right. on that tangent. But you're not allowed owning a pit bull in Ontario. But you are allowed owning a tiger, a tiger. or a lion. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just insane. And, and I mean, from a public safety perspective... Yeah. Um, if people don't really care about the welfare of the animals, okay, okay, well, it's not okay. But you know, but from a public safety perspective, these animals are—they're wild animals. They're not—they're very different from a domesticated dog right. or cat. Okay. Right? So, yeah. Speaking speaking of the safety factor, let me play this for you, Rebecca. Now, this sure. is uh, Representative Mike Quigley. He's a Democratic member of the House of Representatives in the United States, and. He was the guy who sponsored this bill that just passed the U.S. House that would ban the ownership of big cats. And and here he is talking to the House of Representatives about it. 500-pound carnivores pose a serious and very real threat to first responders, law enforcement officers, entire communities around the country. The photo behind me is not staged. 
This bill is also endorsed by the Humane Society of the United States and countless other animal welfare organizations because lions and tigers do not belong in urban apartments or in cages in suburban backyards and because private citizens simply do not have the resources to care for dangerous animals that are meant to roam over hundreds of square miles. Okay, that's uh, the debate yeah. in the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. And by the way, when he said that the, the photo behind me is not a prop or it was not staged, yeah. it was a photo of a police officer going up to a house, and there's a, t- a tiger in the window looking like it's trying yeah. to break through the window. So, I know, I know. And that's what it just, it's, it really is, it's absolute insanity. And, and I feel bad for these uh, enforcement officers who have to go on to people's properties. And sometimes it's, whether it's a police officer or animal control or very often what happens in Canada and, and elsewhere for that matter is when people can't take care of these animals because they realize, holy crap, I got into my, like, I got into something I really shouldn't have. And they want to either um, give the, the animal uh, to, to a shelter or the shelter, right. like the SPCA wants to seize the animal. Those people, too, like the shelter people, they're not necessarily equipped to deal with exotic animals either. Okay. Like we're lucky here in BC we have Dooney Animal Hospital um, and, and a couple of others but that, who do have expertise. But, man, it's really it's a terrible situation okay. to put these people in. Real quickly, Rebecca, and then we'll take a quick break and get and take a couple of phone calls. How many lions and tigers are in Canada in like private hands estimated? Yeah, it, well, the estimate there's a little over two thousand, like twenty twenty four hundred tigers, twelve uh, twelve hundred lions. Okay. Uh, this is across Canada, but again, it's the best estimate, right? Because it's not regulated very well. So right. the World Animal Protection Society, and a shout out to them because they put a lot of work into trying to put pieces of a puzzle together, uh, along okay. with Zoo Check as well. Rebecca Breder is my guest.